I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. We hear that well-known story of Jesus turning water into wine. But also as we see this in fulfillment of what the prophets of old longed to see, they longed to see the Messiah come who would bring the joy, he would bring the wine of gladness. We want to also turn to the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 25, we'll read a quick few verses from 25 and verses 6 through 9, and then we will see Jesus' fulfillment of those words in John chapter 2. Congregation, before we read God's word, shall we ask for his blessing? Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you, asking that you would speak to us, that our souls would hear and that they would live. We thank you that before us you have spread a feast of rich food, that we might partake by faith, and that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray that you would fill us now with your spirit, that you would fill us with the good things that you you show us in your word, that we would receive your grace. And that as we read of a Messiah who comes to bring fullness, that we too would be filled. We ask this humbly with expectation that you will do this for his sake. Amen. Isaiah 25, beginning at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Thus far from God's word in that place, we read of wonderful fulfillment of this in John chapter 2 as Jesus and his disciples make their way as guests to a wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. 
When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As far from the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it this morning. This, the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. That's what we see here this morning, people of God. The glory of Christ revealed as he begins his his public ministry. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That we might receive grace upon grace, overabundance. That's what, really what we see this morning. Glory on, on full display and full of grace and truth and overabundance. It's a, a simple story that we read, a wedding at Cana. It's a human interest account, a wedding gone wrong. Very relatable with all of our modern weddings and all of the different circumstances. Something always goes wrong. It's not a complicated story. It's rather direct and obvious. There are social ramifications that hang on the, the bride and the groom, particularly the groom, because it's, it's his crisis. He, he was the one in charge of the wine. And it's, it's a disaster. The guests have, have arrived. It's the third day, according to the text, and, and the wine is already gone. And boys and girls, weddings were a, a big deal. They, they typically lasted seven days, and the Israelites loved their weddings. There was, there was music and dancing, and the bride and the groom were, were, were paraded through the streets at night, and, and their wedding party trimmed and, and lit their wicks as they followed them, the bride and the groom, to their new house. And the first week of their wedding wasn't set aside and devoted to some honeymoon, but it was the first week of their marriage was, was doors all open for guests to come and celebrate, to receive the guests so that they might congratulate the new bride and the new groom. And usually these, these homes were connected by a common courtyard in the backyard, you might might think of it that way, and, and the courtyard would be filled with tables, and, and there would be food on all of the tables, and it would, the, the courtyard would be lined with, with flowers. You might, you might think of it as a big outdoor reception, with all of the flowers and decorations lined up on the arches of the courtyard. But the most essential element of the wedding festival was missing. The wine, the wine which gladdens the heart of man, it's, it's all been drunk. And we're not given a reason why, but maybe it was a failure of counting the guests. Maybe it was the, the bridegroom miscalculated the, the amount of people or the amount that people would drink. But nevertheless, it's, it's all gone. And, and we can see from the story that evidently this couple was well-to-do. They had pulled out all of the stops. They had stone water jars highlighting that, that they weren't poor. They had enough to watch, wash a, the feet of a multitude of guests. They had a master of the feast or master of ceremonies who was in charge with making the arrangements and all of the hosting. And yet this whole week is on the brink of being ruined because the wine has run out. And we might not think of it as a big deal in our modern weddings, but it was essential to a a Jewish wedding. Wine was reserved for this kind of occasion. 
Eating and drinking was the sign that a covenant had been, had been ratified, that a covenant had been legitimized. Aaron and his sons, when Moses came down from the mountain, ate and drank as God, so to speak, married himself to Israel. The priests ate and drank. And Jesus says of his coming wedding that there will be, it will be accompanied by eating and drinking the, the cup of the new wine, the new wine of heaven. It's essential to a, a proper wedding. And the reputation of the bride and the groom would be forever ruined. It would be the same as saying that this man didn't care enough about his marriage, that he didn't value his wife high, highly enough to provide a proper celebration. It would be, it would be the gossip of the town for many years past and many years later, that, that this is the couple that didn't have any wine at their wedding. It would be an embarrassment. And still worse, it was entirely possible that the guests could present litigation against the couple. They could sue the couple because they brought their gifts, but the, the couple never received them with their gifts, with a proper reception. The whole thing is a disaster. It's a catering crisis. And yet the Apostle John, his, his focus is not, not on the bride or, or the groom. Notice they aren't even given names, but they, they, they're quite un, unimportant to the story in many respects to what John sees. His focus is, is not on the festivities, but it's as if his eyes are focused on the kitchen staff, the, the back room of the reception hall. His focus is on the beginning, he says. This is the beginning of Jesus' signs. Remember that he previously announced in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He reflects the language of Genesis 1, where we have that creative power of God who makes all things out of nothing, everything that is. And, and Jesus is that self-same Word. He was in the world, and, and, and the world was made through him, as John says. It's an amazing statement. God in flesh, God incarnate as man. And, and not soon after the creative word is spoken, both in Genesis and in John, we read immediately following that a, an account of a wedding. In Genesis 2, we have the very first wedding where, where God addresses the incompleteness of his crowning work of creation, his man. He, he addresses the the incompleteness of the, of the man by creating woman out of his flesh, out of his bone of his bone, he says, flesh of my flesh. And so to here we read that John introduces to us a wedding where we are pointed forward to a new beginning, a, a new humanity, so to speak, the beginning of Jesus' signs. That's an important word. They're signs. He calls them signs, not miracles. He, he takes what is normal. He takes what is natural. And he transforms it to point to his supernatural work. They, they take on a new form and point beyond themselves to his redemptive purpose. And this is the first here at Cana, at a wedding, at a wedding with a crisis, to which Jesus, in the humility of his human flesh, is but a humble guest. And evidently we read that Mary, the mother of Jesus, has been watching what's been unfolding for the last few days. And, and she sees Jesus arriving to the feast with his disciples and she runs to him to report what's going on, this developing crisis. There's a hint that perhaps she was involved with some of the arrangements, that perhaps she knew the bride or the groom and had some responsibilities regarding the wedding. And nevertheless, she runs to her son and, and she says to him, they have no wine. 
She understands the social stigma that is taking place. She understands that this is a crisis. And she does what any mother would do. She runs to her son and tells him what's going on. And of, of course, in the story, we know that Mary is aware of who her son is. Her faith is in God's word. It's been made clear to us. Do to me according to your word, she said to the angel. She knows about her son. And that, that her faith is in God's word. She's completely reliant on God's word. Her faith is in him, and, and she's completely reliant on her son. In fact, some have speculated that perhaps at this point in the story that Joseph had already passed, and now that all she has is her son. And so she comes with her need. But notice Jesus' response. It's it sounds like a response in which he's taking a step back from her, her would-be embrace. Woman, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That's not a disrespectful response, at least not to the effect that it has in the English language. It's a typical greeting saying something like lady or, or ma'am, a respectful greeting that was used every day in that world, but worlds apart from the greeting that a son would use of his mother. Jesus is, is saying that this crisis has, has nothing to do with him. It's not on his calendar. It, it doesn't fit his timeline. It's not according to his hour. It's, it's trivial according to what's weighing on his mind as he begins his public ministry. And of course, you know that John uses that word, this hour, quite a lot in, in his gospel. To him and to Jesus, it's like the ticking of the, the clock that begins here, and, and the hand does not stop until it reaches the hour of its culmination at the cross, where he fulfills his work in revealing the Father, the Father's glory in, 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 in his work of redemption. And he gently tells Mary, this isn't why I've come. This isn't the hour for me to reveal my glory. His focus is, is on being the true bridegroom. That he has come to do the will of his father in heaven, not the will of his mother on earth. In effect, he's telling Mary, I have come to deal with a much greater crisis. And it's not that Jesus is reluctant to help, but rather that his eye is looking upon his cross and that, that Mary must see that she needs him not as, as son, but as Lord. His hour is not yet come. The hour of his death, his crucifixion, where he will, will drink his own cup, the cup of his father, that is, has ordained for him to drink the cup of his wrath. And he will drink it dry as the wine has run out here in Cana. And yet Jesus is gentle and lowly and he does have concern for someone else's wedding. And we read that Mary shakes off this gentle rebuke and gathers the servants and tells them to listen to whatever he says. Do whatever he says. She's a model of faith as a disciple, but she's not, not a mediator. She's not co-mediator. She's not the mediatrix or the, the, the neck that turns the face of God. She's a humble disciple acting in faith. And we see Jesus respond in action, not because he's obedient to his mother, but because he's obedient to his Father in heaven. And that's what we see as it develops as Jesus makes his way to these stone jars with the servants. He's, he's beginning to reveal his glory that he has received from the Father, full of grace and truth. Revealing himself to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, the one that was promised now in the flesh. Because he sees a deeper issue 
than social miscues. He sees a problem as it relates to all of humanity. He sees your problem. He sees my problem. Because if you pull on the threads of this story, of this human interest account, it's a story about, about you. It's a story about me. You quickly realize that the, the problem isn't simply that, that the wine is all gone, but, but that the wine never lasts. Even if the bridegroom were to go to the store and pick up more wine to bring to the wedding, that wine would be gone too. The wine never keeps. The joy, the, the, the wine which brings gladness to the heart of man always becomes depleted. And it never lasts. The gladness of heart never lingers long. And each of us becomes like an addict in that way, searching for the next fix of joy. What will make me happy? A source of happiness that won't run dry. And, and we have broken cisterns. We, we run to the trash heap of of life to find fixes of joy. Jesus sees that sin has rendered us incapable of producing lasting joy. That the, the law of Moses, which was given, that, that we would have fellowship with God, weakened by the sinful flesh, is unable to bring us any closer to God. And so John watches as this true bridegroom it goes with his servants to the back room of the wedding feast, to the kitchen where he finds six stone jars, and he tells the servants, take the jars, fill them, fill them with water. And the servants fill the six stone jars with water up to the brim so that nothing more could be added, nearing somewhat around 160, 180 gallons of water. And notice there weren't any, they weren't any stone jars, but these were the ones that were used for the, the rites and, and rituals of purification, according to the Mosaic Law. And notice the number six, a number to represent their incompleteness. Now filled completely to the brim. The law came through Moses, John introduces this gospel saying, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. He takes these instruments of Old Testament cleansing, and the first thing he does with them is, is fill them all the way to the brim. As if to say that the old has ceased, there is no more room for anything old. Behold, the new has come. He takes away the shadows that cling to these stone jars. He shines a, a light upon them to show them the truth of what they represent. They were simple jars for cleansing the, the feet of dirty wedding guests as, who made their way to the wedding on dusty streets. And their contents reflected that, water to cleanse. But now, boys and girls... Jesus doesn't perform a magic trick or a party favor, but as the Christ, as God in flesh, he recreates. He transforms their purpose. You might, you might think of it this way, that prior to Jesus' arrival, the, the, these were vessels that held the law. But now that he has come, they are transformed to be vessels that, that hold his grace. That's the sign. That's the miracle being performed. They point to the law being fulfilled in him. And out of its fulfillment comes an overabundance. An overabundance of his grace. The whole expectation of the Old Testament was that, that when the Christ came, he would bring with him the overabundance. It would be a time of, of refreshment. Something that the law could not do within itself. It needed to be fulfilled. And, and so symbolized in the stone pots, we see the sign that, that the law is filled to the brim and that Christ now fulfills it that he might dispense his grace. It's a, a messianic miracle. 
Isaiah saw a feast in which there was a covering, a veil, a a cast over the entire celebration. An overcast day with gray clouds, and the guests were unable to celebrate. Instead, each had a a veil upon their own face, mourning and, and sorrow, sackcloth and ashes, covering his or her face. Masquerading from table to table, talking with each other, covering what's written upon their face, their tear-stained eyes behind a veil, unable to celebrate. Because there's a brooding angst floating about the room, their, their inability to celebrate. And that is because of the uninvited and unintended guest. Isaiah says that over the shoulder of every person is death. Every face that would light up with a semblance of joy falls to the floor, for death is the result of man's attempt at joy. And it's the payment he owes for his inability, shame and sorrow and suffering and sin, everything that causes the joy to run out of your life. When the wine which gladdens the heart of man runs dry. The issue at Cana is not the physical wine, but that the Old Covenant administration under the law of Moses could not produce joy, only death. It couldn't produce life without the coming of Christ. The law, apart from grace, is joyless. It's lifeless. Religion, apart from Christ, is empty. It it runs out of its own resources. It, It empties itself dry. And you know this from your own experience. When, you're, when your eyes are taken off of Christ, Christianity becomes a, a dull and sad list of do's and don'ts, a miserable experience. And every day that we engage ourselves in such a discipleship apart from Christ, we mold an unhappy disciple. Where the joy has run out, anxious toil for anxious bread, weighed down by a weight of sin and guilt, joyless because we have drunk from, from broken cisterns. And the expectation of God's people for thousands of years was that when the Christ came, that he would be the one who would bring joy. He would be the bringer of joy. And he will restore the fortunes of those who who trust in him and exceed with joy and gladness. And wine is the symbol of that joy, the beginning of his kingdom. The wine is the symbol that, that his kingdom has come to earth. Amos looked at that mountain, at Mount Zion, and said there is coming a day when when the Christ comes that that the mountain will drip with wine. It will be like an avalanche, boys and girls, of wine from the mountaintops, running down, rushing like a river with sweet wine. Or the prophet Joel, who says that the threshing floors will be filled with grain and, and the vats shall be overflowing with wine. Or the passage that we read together in Isaiah, on on this mountain, that the Lord of hosts will make for his people a feast of rich foods, of well-aged wine, of wine well-refined. And on that day he will swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples. He will swallow up death forever. That was the expectation, that God himself will come and swallow up death forever. And brothers and sisters, that's what catches John's eye. Notice the contrast between Jesus' words and the master of the feast. Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. And listen to what the master of the feast says. He he runs to the bridegroom of the wedding and explodes with praise. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Unwittingly, he describes Jesus' entire ministry 
And the key word is now. My hour is not yet. And the Master Feast says, now, now it is. Now it's here. In fact, look at what Jesus says in verse 8. Now draw some of the wine out and take it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he exclaims, you have kept the best until now. Now, now, now. And brothers and sisters, when God speaks now, he means now. When he says to us in Romans, therefore there is now no condemnation, he means now. And when he says to us here that his kingdom has now come, He means now. That the Christ has come. His ministry has come. Everything is better than before. The better has come. The quality of the celebration is greater than before. These are our moral statements. The poor wine has been drunk. But now the good wine is available. The best, it's been saved for last. The Christ is here. The time of joy and feasting. Jesus himself would say in Matthew 9, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the, the bridegroom is with them? Now he is here. They, Matthew would say that John the baptizer came announcing him out in the desert wearing camel's hair, eating wild locusts and honey, a sort of ascetic adherence to the law in preparation of the, of, of the Christ. But the Pharisees would accuse Jesus and his disciples that that their master comes eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. For John came neither eating and drinking, and they say he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The best wine has been saved for last and saved for the least. It's for sinners. It's for tax collectors. It's, it's for those who have run out of their own resources. For those who have no joy left, no drop of joy. Those who have drunk freely of the poor wine in need of grace. He saves the best for you, dear sinner. The best wine is, is for you to be drunk by him, by, by his giving it to you. To drink his wine, to celebrate his work to taste the royal wine of heaven. How we taste every, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, his table, we, we have a foretasting of, of, of the king's own wine. Because that's really where this points us, doesn't it? To the bridegroom's cross, to his hour, where he will turn not, not water into wine, but blood into wine. Moses could turn water into blood, in reflection of the Lord's judgment. But only Christ can turn blood into wine in reflection of the Lord's grace. And he's the one who has come. And he says, Jesus says, Take, drink, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that I will not drink of this fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's what we foretaste. A portion of the choicest wine. His blood for your sins. And the best is saved for last and for the least. It's the superlative supply. It's the final thing we see this morning. John writes this gospel that that you would know who it is that gives this new wine. Isn't that the one surprising feature of this story? That given everything that that has proceeded in chapter 2, the Word made flesh, who was with God and is God, and who made all things, and nothing was made apart from Him. 
He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and we read in chapter 2 that this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And the Creator has come to a wedding. The one who, who institutionalized marriage, instituted marriage, is a humble guest. The, the, the true bridegroom of his bride. And he brings his own wine to the feast. And, and he doesn't for, do it for the praise of men. In fact, nobody at, at, at the feast knows. The master of the feast praises the groom on the brink of social disaster. The gift goes to the undeserving. And the remarkable thing is that no one at the feast knew where the wine had come from. John is very particular to say that the only ones who knew were a couple of servants and the disciples. They're away in the back room of the kitchen of the wedding hall, witnessing the glory of Christ being made manifest. And it's a fact that bewilders John throughout this entire gospel. No one knew. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the, the world didn't know him. He comes to Nicodemus, and, and Nicodemus was dumbfounded, and he says, you're the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know these things. The crowds eat the loaves of bread, but they do not know where it comes from. Instead, they say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, whom we know? Not believing that he is the son of God. And so too he comes before Pilate, and Pilate does not know where his kingdom comes from, or what is truth, he says. And he hangs upon a cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know. But John writes these things, he says, that we would know, that we would believe. In chapter 20, verse 30, he gives the summary statement of this book, saying that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Here at Cana, his disciples bear witness to the manifestation of his glory. He gives you a foretaste of his kingdom. And John wants us to come to the basement of the reception hall, so to speak, and, and behold his glory, to taste his wine, to know where it's come from. That the Christ has come now into the world, though the world knew it not. And he brings the wine of heaven. Many pastors have said at weddings using this passage that it's important for us to invite Jesus to our wedding, that, that he gets an invitation to our wedding. And it's a nice thing to say, and certainly we want Christian-centered, Christ-centered marriages. But by all accounts, the bridegroom at Cana had no idea Jesus, the Son of God, was even there. He gets the credit for the supply, but, but neither he nor the master of the feast knew. Only the, the, the kitchen staff and the disciples, and they believed. It's not so much that, that we need to invite Christ to our weddings, but that we make sure that we have an invitation to his wedding. As we witness his transformation of water into wine, that, that Christ has come to usher in a long-awaited day of redemption, of messianic fulfillment, the day of grace. Didn't Isaiah say it will be said on that day, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, the covenant God in our midst. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And here he is. Now he's come. Now is his ministry of grace and truth. Now is it fulfilled what was promised. And now awaits his wedding day. The return of the bridegroom to receive his bride, the church, to drink afresh and anew the wine that is befitting the greatest feast and celebration in all of history, the bride, the, the, the wedding of the bridegroom and his bride, the church.
John is often fixated with that day. He writes of that day in Revelation. He says, come, I will show you the bride, the, the wife of the Lamb. And he says, then I heard what appeared to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the, the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed with, with fine linen, bright and pure. You need an invitation to that day. You need to make sure that, that you're on his guest list because it will be an overabounding, never-ending, consummating joy of all of history where this, this wine will never run out, where the joy will never cease, and your heart will be made glad in his salvation. Have you run out of joy this morning, congregation? Have you run out of the wine that gladdens the heart? The bridegroom invites you to come be a guest at his wedding. You're invited to come. The king has, has sent out his servants to gather many for the feast. Jesus would say that the kingdom of God is like a great wedding feast. And the king tells his servants to go and call those who were invited to the feast. But they wouldn't come. I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened calves. They're all slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the feast. But they paid no attention. They went about their business to their farms, even killing some of the servants. Those invited were not worthy to come. And so the king tells his servants to go to every highway and byway, to every gutter, to fill his wedding hall with guests for the wedding, for the feast. He extends his invitation to every sinner to come, even those in the gutter, those whose lives are so upside down. He extends the invitation. Are you exhausted? Are you, are, is your life in the gutter? Are your lips parched? Come to the feast of the Lamb. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Never mind what clothes you wear. He'll give you the proper wedding garments. He'll, he'll make you worthy to fellowship with him. He'll adorn you with his righteousness. He'll put you at the head table. He'll, he'll let, allow you to drink from his wine, which never runs out. He'll turn your sorrow into joy. He brings joy. He brings grace upon grace. Are you troubled in your heart? Are you worried over your sin? Watch us as Jesus takes these jars and, and, and which filled are filled with the law of Moses and turns them to, to hold his grace. Watch as he fills the law to the brim that you might drink of his grace. Watch as he manifests his glory and believe in him. That God in flesh who dwells with sinners can transform your life too, and he intends to do just that. And by his blood spilled on the cross, an overabundant provision made to assure you that it is finished. And by the, the outpouring of his spirit to assure you that you are invited to come. And that by believing, having abundant life, joyful life. And may you say with the master of the feast, Lord, indeed, you have saved the best for last. And it's even for me, the least. This is the first of Jesus' signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace 
and truth. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have come to bring, uh, as you have sent your Son to this earth, uh, to bring new wine. Uh, we often, as struggling sinners and saints, uh, we, we struggle with all the various brokenness and circumstances of life, the dryness, the broken cisterns, the joylessness. Father, we ask that you would fill us with that joy, the joy of knowing that it is finished in him, that he has come, that now is the day of your kingdom, now is the, the hour of your blessing, of your grace, that you have dispensed through your Son, through your Spirit, have assured us that you have grafted us into that vine by faith. And may we live such lives of joy, knowing that, that we have an invitation to the greatest day and feast of human history. What all of history has been looking forward to, and you have invited us. Just as you were a humble guest, so we come as humble guests. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of you that you have given to us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be filled with this grace for his sake. Amen.